The Artificial Intelligence Podcast. AI in real life. If I sound weird, it's because I'm a bit emotional right now. I just watched the trailer for the Lion King live action movie five times in a row and I'm suffering from feelings. I've always been addicted to stories. When I was little, my parents' most effective punishment for me was to take my books away. Can you imagine that? When I missed my curfew, I got banned from reading for a week. And I've always been affected by stories as well. I've been known to cry over books, movies, TV shows, Zelda games. I mean, I've been known to cry while reading the New York Times. On the subway. That incident probably ended up on YouTube somewhere. And that's why this episode is special to me. I feel very lucky to work in media in this time and age. And I'm so thankful I get to see up close how news and stories are made every day. And I'm so very proud that, as small as we are, we're pushing the boundaries of what it means to bring the right stories to the right people. My name is Lia Wang, and joining me is David Graus, who oversees the science of the AI initiatives behind the Financiële Dagblad, our financial daily, and BNR News Radio, our radio and podcast station. And like Microsoft, we also share the belief that AI should empower us. And with us, we mean our readers, our listeners, but also our creators. Here's our story. We're using AI technology to do uh, personalization of the content. So in the case of Smart Radio, uh, we try to uh, automatically segment uh, radio shows and serve them to our users. Uh, In the case of Smart Journalism, we're looking at uh, news articles of the Financial Dagblad. Uh, the FD, um, and here the task is to uh, both do personalized recommendations for articles, um, but our eventual goal is to even provide personalized summaries of articles to our readers. Personalized summaries of our articles. If say I'm uh, a subscriber to Financiële Dagblad, how might that change the product that I'm going to receive? So product-wise, we're <laughs> kind of unsure. Uh, so we're taking uh, currently a very technologi- technological approach in the sense that uh, so we're doing this project in the context of a uh, Google Digital News Initiative Fund and the idea is that we um, uh, see how the technology that is currently uh, being developed in summarization, how that can be applied to our content. So, Well, you can imagine that people that read a lot of news about, for example, cryptocurrency, um, if they if, if a new article is published, they may uh, need less context information about the cryptocurrency aspect. They need less details. Uh, on the other hand, you can imagine that if there's a, a larger article which mentions multiple topics, then in that case, the reader the, the reader interested in cryptocurrency would like to see that part highlighted from the article. So those are kind of the, the ideas we're working with now. And how do you do that? So that's, uh, interestingly enough, kind of... Uh, 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 it hasn't been determined yet. I mean, this is pretty much a moonshot. Uh, in terms of technology, we've seen the last few years a lot of developments, uh, mainly due to the rise and rise of deep learning, um, and in particular in abstractive summarization. So this is about uh, summarizing by writing pretty much new sentences. Uh, there have been quite some developments, and uh, what we're uh, doing right now is to try to figure out uh, how our data, uh, how the articles we have, and how the technology that exists, how they uh, 
play together. Right, because the the summarizing part is one part, right? That mm-hmm. that's the moonshot. That's yeah. never been done before, especially not in the Dutch language. Uh-huh. But underlying that technology are a couple of steps I can imagine you have to take first. Yeah, so there are, and um, that's the idea. So this project is a one and a half year, two year project, uh, and we're taking it uh, step by step. So the first step we're trying to achieve is to better understand the content of our articles. Um, so, well, my background is in search engine technology, and that's a, that's a very long-standing open problem as you try to figure out what are the topics of uh, news articles, what are the entities of interest, so what are the, the people or the organizations that are mentioned there. And that's really the first step you want to take for understanding also the user preferences. Right. So we start with understanding the content, and then we use the content representations to understand the preferences of users. Um, and we do that by looking at their reading behavior. And those are kind of like the the base ingredients for learning what type of information to serve to which reader. So if you start with that first step, understanding the content, like you said, search engines have been trying to do that for many, many years and have become very sophisticated at that. So what makes that so hard in this context? Well, actually, the sophistication with search engines is not necessarily on the technological level. That's more at the skill level. So for a search engine, you want to do this for many billions of uh, web pages, pretty much. Um, I think what makes a difference in a different in our domain is that it is kind of a closed domain. So for the Financial Dagblad, we're in a specific domain. Everything is about financial economic news. So we kind of have a well-enclosed domain that we're working with. Uh, at the same time, we have a lot of rich data. So we have, uh, for all the news articles that have been published for the last, uh, well, many years, they are uh, labeled by hand with certain tags and topics. And those are really the, 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 the starting point for us to start learning models to interpret the content. Right. And then and then how do you go from that starting point to whatever the end point is for you? All right. That's also an interesting point because uh, so while we have a lot of data, it is kind of, it can be noisy at times. So for example, with tagging articles, you can see a lot of different people tag these articles. So it's not very consistent data. Um, so actually coming up with a with a model to take over this tagging for, for us um, is not trivial because you have to learn from this noisy and incomplete data. Can you give me an example of how this data is, is noisy? Right, so uh, we have different types of tags that represent different aspects. So you can imagine that in some cases you want to tag a sector that is relevant to the article. In other cases you want to uh, tag a more general topic. Um, and we see that across these articles uh, there are different ways in which these types of tags are used. So sometimes you may want you, you may have a tag sector while in the other article... Uh, which is about the same sector, it isn't tagged. So it's inconsistent mostly. And that's because humans did it, is that correct? Right, yeah, that's true. So humans did it and different people did it uh, and different people have different interpretations of what tags are relevant to articles. And then what you're trying to do is figure out a common denominator or or I guess the right way to tag articles. Yeah, so so what you do, so you have to start with this world of noisy data. Um, So the first step what you do is to kind of do as good as you can to uh, approach this, to approximate the labeling we have. Um, So you start with developing models, and these are pretty standard machine learning models, uh, to kind of reproduce the text that we have. And once you're at a level where you think like, okay, at least we we kind of get it most of the times, uh, then you want to actually assess how good the tagger works on the the end task you have in mind. And how do you measure how good it works? Because if, if I'm hearing you correctly, you've basically reproduced the noisy 
human tagger. So if you would get 100%, then indeed you would have uh, reproduced the, the noise. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not sure, uh, we've never been able to reach that 100%. Uh, but so you get at, at some level and you have standard metrics like precision and recall to measure how well you do. Um, and you kind of, so in the development phase, you kind of keep on working until you see that you get diminishing returns. Like you don't uh, add a lot more information uh, even though the complexity increases. So at some point it's taking more and more effort to make it a little bit better. Yeah. And yeah. that's when you stop. That's when you stop. So at some point you have the feeling like this is kind of a ceiling uh, and then you need to think about, okay, but what what do we envision for this for this particular application? Okay, so then you have to envision sort of the product you're working towards. Yeah. How do you do that? Right, so in this case, um, what was interesting, so we initially came up with uh, automating the tagging for uh, content representation, so for understanding the article content. Um, but eventually we decided that it, it can also serve our journalists, right, uh, to kind of support them in tagging the articles themselves. So in that case, you have a different end task. So your task is to generate a list of suggested tags and uh, to help uh, to bootstrap the process for the journalist to tag this article. How's that different from the task of creating a representation for your content? How is that different from the first one? So in the case of uh, creating an internal representation that is used for the, for example, personalization algorithm, in that case, it doesn't really matter whether things are correct or not. It just matters whether they're consistent. Can you can you elaborate on that? Uh, right. So, well, we have an example from Smart Radio where you would have, uh, so we transcribe audio there, and it might be that a certain word, for example, a brand name or a company name, is always transcribed transcribed in the wrong way, uh, but it doesn't really matter as long as it's always the same. Right, so so it might spell McDonald's incorrectly, like it might always spell McDonald without the S, but as long as it always does that, exactly. it doesn't matter because you can still recognize it. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Okay, so it's so it's easier. That's kind of easier than than helping our journalists with yeah. tagging. So you get a bit more slack, indeed. Yeah, yeah. So it, it depends because eventually you might still want to expose this to users, and then you have to have this quality control. Um, but to get back to the journalist case, so in that case, if the aim is to support journalists, you you have to incorporate this in your evaluation metric. Like you have to somehow model um, this notion of supporting someone in their task. Um, so what we decided was that we wanted to provide a list of tags and we wanted to see how many operations it would take a journalist to kind of clean this uh, set up. So either adding a missing tag or deleting a wrong tag right. in the journalist's point of view. Right. So so you would get a list of suggestions and the question would be which tags are irrelevant uh, and which ones were relevant but were missed. Uh, those two things we were looking at. And how many tags did you show the journalists? Because I can imagine they might have better things to do than, than check your tagging. <laughs> True. So, I mean, yeah, there are always some constraints. Uh, we wanted to have a sample that was large enough to have uh, um, statistically uh, valid data. Uh, I think in the end we, we showed them uh, like 200 samples or something like this. Uh, the uh, number of tags differed per article, and that's also kind of an aspect of this uh, model that we used. Uh, so longer articles... Typically, it was uh, more difficult to generate a lot of text because there's a lot of different signals uh, and shorter articles typically received more. Um, but what we did see at the end of the line was that on average, it would, took, it would take 1.3 operations for a journalist to clean up the suggested list to a final list. Um, and, your, and your target was one, right? Target still is one. Yes. Target is one. <laughs> so how do you then move from 1.3 to one? How do you further improve your algorithm? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good point. So uh, the, the next step is to kind of analyze and see what what happens more often. Like, do we more often miss 
relevant tags or more often add noisy tags. Uh, I think that's a good first step. And from then on, you can kind of tune your algorithm towards either overproducing or being more strict with it. So when you say tune your algorithm, what do you actually do as a data scientist? Right, so that can depend as well. That depends on many things like the model, the task. Uh, in this case, uh, however, we uh, are talking about a multi-label text classifier. Uh, and I think tuning the model would be pretty much uh, to, to change the threshold at which uh, the model thinks the tag is relevant to the article. So there's like an internal representation of the certainty that the tag should belong to the article, and you can uh, make it more strict at that level. But here the idea is as well, because we, we kind of use these representations as internal representations for the algorithms, um, the idea is to, to be as broad as possible. So tags is one aspect. We have some statistical measures that are really hard to express in, uh, in human language. Uh, we have things like the duration, the length of an article. Uh, we have the, the number of words. Um, uh, but also more abstract things like the sentiment score of an article, whether it's positive or negative. And the idea is to capture as many aspects as possible to kind of create a rich representation. And the cool thing is that we don't really need to understand them ourselves, but we need to kind of cover different dimensions that uh, can describe the content. How come you don't really have to understand how they work or, or what they exactly mean, those representations. Right, because um, so these will serve as a, as, a, as, as a basis for an algorithm to derive features from. So um, say that we represent an article by looking at the topics that are relevant or we represent an article by the companies that are mentioned. Then these two are slightly different representations, but an algorithm may pick up that you either prefer the topics or you prefer the companies that are mentioned there. So the, the idea is the more uh, dimensions you capture, the more uh, um, room you have to generalize and to learn. Right. And, and does that come back to the fact that the algorithm hasn't, doesn't necessarily need to label correctly as long as it labels consequently, consistently? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it should label consistently and it should um, yeah, kind of capture different aspects of, of the same uh, article. So then you have all these representations and characteristics of the content that you figure out mm -hmm. how do you know when it's good enough how do you know whether you understand a piece of content well enough to to move to the next step right so this is actually um quite an intricate uh, story you don't uh, it's it's hard to this ties in with what we're actually aiming to do with these representations and what we're aiming to do is uh, as a first step is to start personalizing the delivery of articles. So that means, uh, we all know this from Netflix, you go into Netflix, you get a bunch of recommendations. Like these are films you might be interested in based on either what you watched before or what, what, what others have watched that have a similar taste to yours. So that's our end goal. And our representations initially serve as a, as a as feature space for this end goal. So another question is how do we measure whether we are successful in sending the right or in delivering the right uh, information to the right people? So you have to make the step to the user first to, to understand whether your first step was good enough. Right. So this is a continuous feedback loop in the sense that um, yeah, you have your feature space and you have your end goal and you kind of uh, tune your feature space towards this end goal as well. So the current approach is that we kind of use theory to kind of figure out these are aspects that we think are important. So that's a bit of no domain knowledge. We know uh, companies are a very important uh, dimension in, in the content of uh, FDA. We know sectors are, um, so that's kind of intuitions that tell us like we have to cover at least these dimensions. And those are very specific to, in this case, 
the domain of the FD. Like they might be different for for Netflix or for Amazon or. Yeah, definitely they will be. So that's both a, a blessing and a curse. So you can imagine that the eventual tagger we develop. Uh, may not generalize to other domains. At the same time, the technology that's used is kind of similar. So you could transplant it to another domain if you get different data. Um, so that's well, what is with that's the case with all of machine learning. Is if you have the right data in your domain, then you can do pretty well. Yeah, the challenge isn't so much in perfecting the algorithm. The challenge in, is in in training it. Yeah, and 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 that really shows in like the day-to-day activities we we currently do in our team. If I compare that to my PhD, like we're using a lot of off-the-shelf libraries and tools to kind of develop our our models. And then and then what do you do with those tools? What is it then that you do? So what we do um, day-to-day is mostly, uh, well, it sounds a bit boring, and it, it's like a big cliche within the AI world, but like data is really important. So um, first cleaning it, understanding what your domain looks like, understanding the specific aspects of, uh, of your data is important as a first step, and that kind of uh, informs you what type of model, what type of approach to use. Um, so a lot of it is figuring out data, figuring out the problem, then coming up with the right, right model, then you have a phase of like experimentation and you're running these models, you're seeing results, and then there's a huge phase of productizing. Of like, okay, we have this model now and it sits in my laptop, but how do we get it in an infrastructure? And how do we make sure that each article that is published automatically gets tagged with uh, this model? And it sounds like in all phases, the domain knowledge is extremely important. But you're a data scientist. Well, you're a data scientist who happens to have a background in media. But, mm-hmm. you know, there are a lot of data scientists who don't have that. So how do you get that domain knowledge into, you know, your team and everything you're doing? Well, you have to talk to people. I mean, you cannot do this in an island by yourself, uh, especially if it's about things that that touch the, the organization as a whole. I mean, when we're talking about personalization, then uh, you're talking about how, how uh, content is delivered uh, and... I mean, you have to do more than just run an algorithm to to optimize that. You have to kind of also figure out from the organization, like, what are our wishes here? What are the constraints? Um, so, yeah, you really have to make sure that, you, that you're embedded in the organization where, where there's enough communication. And then, of course, what's important to notice is that uh, eventually, uh, when we deploy this model, it will be uh, trained uh, and continuously trained by the feedback of journalists as well. So when we're talking about a tagger that uh, serves uh, a list of suggested tags, then the uh, feedback we get from it is something we incorporate in the model as well. So that's how you kind of keep on learning uh, how the fit is of your model to your domain and to your task. Right. So earlier you talked about how at some point you have your representation of the content finished or finished for as far as you can go mm-hmm. and then you have to close the feedback loop with the user and with the actual task you're trying to accomplish yeah. what does that step look like right so this is a um, continuous process where we try to measure based on the behavior of people whether the recommendations we serve are any good right so this is a kind of an interesting loop because as a first step to understand user behavior we're looking at their reading behavior so we're trying to build a model of their preferences based on this reading behavior. Once we have this model, we put the model into production and we look at how people respond with this model. So there's a continuous back and forth between the um, estimate we make of their preferences and their actual resulting behavior. So um, what is important to note here is that the kind of signal we're picking up is, so it's shared across users. So what we're pretty much doing is we're finding patterns in behavior across different users, but within 
groups of users, right? So there might be people that are a bit similar to to me in terms of preferences, and uh, that informs the system what to recommend to me. What does success lo- look like for me as a user? Right, for you as a user, it would mean that you would uh, go to fd.nl. Uh, you would see somewhere on the website, I'm not sure where yet, uh, you'll see a list of uh, articles that were personally selected, recommended to you, a personal selection of articles for you. Um, and then you would click the first one because you really want to read that one. right? That's success. Uh, well, that's also success internally for us. That's what we're measuring. Like We're going to provide a ranking. We hope you click the first one. If you click the first one, we did a good estimate of what you find most relevant. So I can imagine that's good for me. Um, how's that good for journalists who right now take a lot of time selecting the right articles for the front page and all that? Right. I mean, uh, journalists will will keep doing that. I, I always think that these kind of models should be complementary. I mean, you cannot, uh, you still have to decide as a newspaper what is important to the reader. Um, there might be breaking news that will be very hard to be picked up by these recommender systems. So this is more kind of a, an additional functionality you add in there. Um, and what good it will do to journalists is that you will be able to serve the articles to the right people. Um, so we did a little experiment with personalizing newsletters. Uh, and what we saw there is that in a week's time, um, we both got higher engagement. So people more often clicked links in your newsletters. And across the board, we sent out many a larger, a much larger number of articles than we would have with the previous method, which was just to send five most read articles. Um, so you'll see that more people start reading your content. Yeah, so you actually spread readership across more content. Right, so in uh, recommender systems terms, it's called unleashing the long tail. And that's actually a very strong use case for, for using personalization because you're all of a sudden you're able to find your niche audience. And then does that mean that every single reader gets a different newsletter? So in this case, when it's a fully personalized newsletter, it is. Um, but of course, I mean, this is also an editorial decision. This is a decision you make as a newspaper. Like you can have breaking news newspaper, uh, newsletters. You can have personalized newsletters. There are different use cases. It's just one more uh, tool in the shed. So you started by telling me about this moonshot of personalized summaries of articles for every mm-hmm. person. And um, we talked a lot about all the stuff you've been doing to get there. Where would you say we are right now? So if we, uh, um, so the current uh, planning we have is kind of like a three-step uh, uh, phase, um, and we're we're around the second step. So we have the the content representation. We have the, a better understanding of of the content we produce. Uh, we're getting towards an understanding of the user preferences, and the third step would be to combine those in a way that is more fine-grained than at the article level. So right now we're looking at user behavior on the article level, but we want to go towards user behavior on the information level. So that sounds like everything's on schedule. We're getting there, yeah. Um, In this process, what was the one thing that you didn't expect or that really surprised you? Okay, something that that surprised me and that I'm uh, really quite happy about is that uh, we're now at this phase of AI and machine learning where there's a lot of a lot of knowledge sharing and knowledge sharing used to be just papers but nowadays we get uh, github repositories with source codes that we can just start running uh, so we invested in a little uh, big uh, deep learning machine uh, and and part of what it does is just running existing models uh, so that we can see how we can adopt them to our use case to our data to our task 
So there's a whole ecosystem that's developing right now. Yeah, there's a whole ecosystem and it's it's growing and it's huge. Inside information, our little big deep learning machine even has a name. We call her the maggot brain. She's right under my desk, keeping my feet warm and toasty all day long, while she's thinking hard for David Graus and the rest of our AI team. Next episode, we'll explore what AI means for the responsibility we have as creators towards you. The OG AI. Steven Spielberg's movie, AI, Artificial Intelligence from 2001, might be a misjudged masterpiece, which hides more than most people might have noticed 17 years ago. When the first trailer aired, one Janine Sala was listed in the credits as a sentient machine therapist. Educated at Bangalore University in engineering and machine intelligence, she seemed to have had been of great importance to the makers of the movie. But she never existed. But when you googled her back in 2001, you would get a number of results, including her personal website. And when you were interested enough, you would discover that you were partaking in a futuristic murder scenario in the world of the beast. And so the game begins, because this was a game, a murder to be solved. They engineered up to 40 websites, hundreds of individual pages, adverts, phone numbers, with references to the movie, because see, it is still a movie promotion setup. With no social media back then, it took some time for people to notice and start playing. Clues and hints were hidden all over. When you looked at an AI film poster, you would notice that, hidden on the reverse, a series of ringed letters would spell out the words Evan Chang was murdered and Janine was the key. And there even was a hidden phone number in AI's American film trailer, which, when called, would provide you with a message. Oh, they even orchestrated anti-robot demonstrations. No one really knows how many played, and no one knows if these elaborate games helped in any way with the promotion of the movie. And to the disappointment of the creators, no one ever really found all the clues they left behind. Janine never existed, but she does have an obituary. Do you want to know the whole story? Check our friends at danofgeek.com. Well, I was about to go and watch Pitch Perfect for the third time this week. I said I loved stories. I never claimed I had any taste. But perhaps I should give Netflix's recommender system another shot. Who knows what I'll be crying about tonight. Join me for more at bnr.nl slash AI podcast or on your favorite podcast app.